Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Have you ever wondered, is it possible to prove the existence of God? On this episode, Bishop and special guest, University of St. Francis professor Dr. Lewis Pearson, use philosophical arguments with relatable examples to show how it could be done. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we have a special guest today, philosophy professor from the University of St. Francis, Dr. Lewis Pearson. Thanks for being here, Dr. Pearson. Thanks for having me. And Bishop, maybe I, I've got so many questions. We're going to be talking about one of the most, I, I think, exciting topics is proving the existence of God in here. Before we get into it, though, uh, do we have a prayer to start with? Yes, I thought we could pray the act of love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. O Lord God, I love you above all things, and I love my neighbor for your sake, because you are the highest, infinite, and perfect good, worthy of all my love. In this love, I intend to live and die. Amen. Our Lady Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, thank you both for joining us for this. I think it's going to be a, a really interesting topic and one that we can continue to go back to and refer friends to. When we're talking about proving the existence of God, I think some may think that this is an easy thing to do, and some might think it's an impossible thing to do. What are we talking about when we're talking about proofs to begin with? Well, I'll start, but I want to say before, I'm really happy that Dr. Pearson's here <laughs> because it's been a, you know 40 years or more since I studied <laughs> philosophy, so I'm going to defer to Lewis a lot. Well, I'll just like to share real briefly on, on a personal side, when I was struggling whether to believe or not believe in the existence of God when I was in college, you know what really tipped the balance for me on the reason side of things? The rational side were the five proofs or five ways of St. Thomas Aquinas. I mean, technically, he calls them the five ways, but we commonly say five proofs. And especially his proof from contingency, which we might want to talk about, and and the order of the universe and divine design. So I think these kinds of different wonderful philosophers can help us to see the credibility of faith. And I think especially for young people today who might be struggling mm -hmm. with the question of whether God exists or not. So, yeah. Sure. Yeah. I think when you talk about proofs, there's this false dichotomy that we have today from pop culture, maybe bad media coverage that science and faith conflict, you know, things like that. And so you mm -hmm. think, well, if, if I want to be a believer, I, I can't be a rational person or vice versa. And proofs are something that we've had from the beginning of the time that church fathers have been writing about the faith, showing that the God of the philosophers, the ancient Greeks, just so happens to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to use a phrase that then Cardinal Ratzinger wrote about in his book, Introduction to Christianity, that what we get from the Greeks in our tradition of reason is fully compatible with what we get from the people of God because God is one and he makes this world and the truth that we find when we look for truth is going to be God's truth. So proofs, you ask what they're, what they're like or what they're for. They're, they're basically for helping people to come to see the truth of God. We have emotion, we have experience, we have reason. We have all of these different apparatuses and faculties God's given us to understand who he is and 
proofs are one thing that help engage one of the faculties God's given us for seeing who he is. But are we able to actually prove that God exists? It seems like then we wouldn't need faith anymore if we could actually prove that God exists. I would say St. Paul in Romans says we can come to uh, knowledge of God through created things. Mm -hmm. So I think by reason alone, I think, yes, one can come to the knowledge of the existence of God. That's kind of what I, I mentioned Thomas Aquinas, but others as well. But you couldn't come by reason alone to knowledge of much about God other than... Like the Trinity. and Yeah, like yeah. the Trinity and, mm -hmm. you know, the personal God that we believe in. That You need revelation to know fully. So I guess you could say you can know by reason that God is, but not much about who God is. Yeah. I think you can come to know a number of things. I mean, the short answer to your question, Kyle, to reiterate what... Bishop said, yes, you can prove it. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's, it's not that hard. And we've done it for years. We've done it before Christ incarnated. The, the pagans knew hmm. that there was a God. And they knew because they could demonstrate, meaning show through logical inference to a conclusion that there mm -hmm. is a God. But yeah, it's, it's a common trope today to believe, well, you can't prove that he exists or you can't prove that he doesn't exist. You can't. When I teach my students, I'll typically just be that blunt to kind of wake them up. And they'll say, can you do this? Yes. Yeah. And... You know, it's, it's arresting, but then I think they're ready to listen. All right, well, what's this supposed proof? And Bishop, when you said you really got drawn to one of Thomas's ways, the interesting thing about, you know, he writes the Summa Theologiae or Summa Theologica as a primer. I mean, we look at this giant yeah. tome and it's supposed to be the basics for the, the people going into the order of preachers for, for, for learning how to, how to be good, good preachers. Uh -huh. And Thomas is basically just saying, here's five ways to prove it. Not these are the exhaustive ways, these are the only ways, but he's just giving them a summary of the stuff that he thinks everybody should know about. Yeah. It's not the end-all, be-all, but it's a really great place to see, look, just off the top of my head, here's five ways. Yeah. yeah. But it's another way of saying, yeah, you can prove this. So if there were a comprehensive list, how many different unique ways are there to prove the existence of God? I, there, there's a lot that kind of overlap, so I sure. guess it depends on how you wanted to list them. I, I mean, there's what's called the ontological arguments. There's the cosmological arguments, which is really Thomas. I think there's just a lot of ways, but they can be grouped together in different categories. Do you do that in your Yeah, How yeah. You so you, you mentioned ontological arguments. Uh, that comes from ontos, the Greek word for being, or logos, account, or word. So the study of being. Mm -hmm. So ontological arguments are arguments that on reflecting on the nature of what being has to be in itself, just reflecting on the nature of being alone, you can derive the conclusion that there is a God. Okay. Bishop also mentioned cosmological arguments as a, as a category, cosmos for the created physical universe, so the account of the physical universe. Prime mover arguments, what's the first thing behind everything that got the whole ball rolling? Cause-effect arguments are, are here, right? What caused you to be? It's your parents. What caused them to be your grandparents, et cetera? You keep going back. So cosmological arguments are arguments that show there's got to be something behind the world that we see, this phenomenon we call the physical universe. There's arguments from design, sometimes called teleological. teleological yeah. yeah. So telos meaning the end, right? The, the, the meaning, the purpose, what is it you had in mind when you did this thing? So teleological arguments are sometimes called design arguments or fine-tuning arguments. For instance, C. Stephen Lehman, he, he wrote a book called Letters to a Doubting Thomas. He he says in that book, for instance, if you look at all of the cosmological constants that had to be just so, gravitational constants, strong and weak nuclear forces, etc., uh -huh. if they were off just by a little bit, one way or the other, our universe would have been just 
you know, a singularity that stayed a singularity, or would it be just gas, hydrogen gas in space? But it's 10 to the power of 43, that order of magnitude of how many things had to be in place. It's trillions upon trillions upon trillions of degrees of uh, just how many things had to be just so for our universe to be what it is uh-huh. and support life that is sentient, that has free will. And so these fine-tuning arguments point out this, to say this is just chance is to say there's no explanation whatsoever. So it's just to give up on reason, period. Right. And when you do that, you've given up on what we're doing in the first place when we're having conversations. There's so much here. I, I, I can't wait to hear more about this. Why don't we take a break, and then when we come back, we'll get into some of these arguments or proofs for the existence of God. Coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes and our special guest, Dr. Lewis Pearson from the University of St. Francis, talking about proving that God exists, arguments for the existence of God, and kind of talked about different genres of these proofs. But how do we know if these are, are good proofs? Are, are, there, are there bad proofs for the existence of God? Or Yeah, so uh, it's a good question. If you don't mind, I'll start answering that question with what sounds like the beginning of a, of a joke. Okay. Three, three philosophers walk into a bar. Uh-huh. So this happened to me. It's a true story. True story. <laughs> true story. Uh, it wasn't in this diocese. So I was together with an evangelical, happened to be a philosopher. Mm-hmm. I'm Catholic, Catholic philosopher, and a Nietzschean universalist Unitarian. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah, yeah. So the three of us are together, and the evangelical asks me, I don't know if it was kind of prodding, the Nietzschean Universalist Unitarian, for people who don't know much, basically he's, he's sort of a nihilist uh-huh. who wants to... Anyway, uh, yeah, so, so someone who doesn't have much truck with this kind of God talk. Uh-huh. And so uh, the evangelical philosopher asked me, what do you think the best proof of God's existence is? Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's, that's where the joke ends and the explanation begins. I told him, it, it depends on who I'm talking to. Sure. The, the problem with, with proofs for today when people say you can't prove these things is most people have a different understanding of what they think a proof is than what a proof actually is. So a proof works if its premises with the, the, the use of the rules of logic actually support the truth of the conclusion. But what most people think a proof is, is something that convinces me, right? So I, I like to think in, in terms of mathematics, like in differential equations, we have proofs, we have proofs in uh, abstract algebra and calculus, et cetera. Geometry, most of us have taken in, in high school. But a five-year-old looking at a proof in geometry doesn't know what he's looking at, hmm. right? So even though it's true, it's a valid proof, it actually supports the conclusion with its premises and the rules of logic, it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to convince me or a five-year-old or someone who doesn't know math. So whether a proof works is separable from whether a proof persuades. Oh. And so when people say there's no such thing as a proof, sometimes what they mean is there's nothing you can say that will convince everyone on the planet. Mm-hmm. Well, this isn't, shouldn't be news. There's nothing that, that everyone agrees to on that. Like, there, there's no proof that the, that the world is real, that right. gravity exists, that I'm here. I, I could be a, you know, an illusion in a dream. So there, there's no such thing as it's a double standard to say, well, you don't have one thing you can say that convinces everybody the moment you hear it. And so I think when we, when we separate out what a proof is from what we want it to do, and it starts to help answer that question you had, well, if we can prove God exists, does that get rid of faith? There's many ways that it doesn't. For instance, uh, faith is an infused theological virtue that helps us to know our ultimate end being God. It, it perfects our reason. It tells our reason what, what direction to aim for and tells us if we're going off course. Faith and reason are supposed to be going together. Mm-hmm. But another re- uh, reason 
faith and reason don't conflict here is because, yeah, by proof, we don't mean we're destroying your free will. Like there's a magic spell you can cast and everyone has to say yes the moment they hear it. My answer to that question in the bar was, if I'm talking to a philosopher, I'm going to go ontological. Because philosophers really understand logic. They know what it means to talk about being. And I think, from my perspective as a philosopher, the ontological arguments are the most powerful. They're the most convincing for me, Hmm. for someone for whom logic is a very real reality in my consciousness. If I'm talking to someone who's more scientifically minded, they want so-called hard evidence, they want to talk in terms of mechanistic cause, I'm going to go cosmological. I'm going to go teleological, fine-tuning of all the different constants. Partly because many people themselves are surprised when a non-specialist actually knows words like gravitational constant and strong and weak nuclear forces uh-huh. and actually knows what those things are, uh, but also because then it's on their terms, right? I mean, all of this, I'm thinking about a recent Truth and Charity, you did, Bishop, when you're talking about evangelization. It's not winning a debate. It's winning souls for Christ. And so getting it on their, their turf, if you're a scientist, let me talk in the terms that you'll like. You probably won't like ontological. I mean, case by case, who knows? But generally speaking, if I'm talking to the man on the street, I'm probably just going to go historical. I think about something that uh, Ray Garendi said on one of his shows recently, that when people ask about God's existence, he's just going to talk about Jesus. How else can you explain that a man has all these followers who die for the sake of someone who they say came to life? You, you don't do that if you're a fraud. You don't right. do that if you're you know, trying to cheat people and lie to people and, and hiding the fact that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So it really depends on who I'm talking to how I'm going to prove to them God exists. And just to go to the, maybe the most common experience most of us have, most people wouldn't call this a proof. If I'm dealing with a loved one, a family member who's struggling, not just with belief in God, but primarily with some kind of pain, Hmm. the way I'm going to so-called prove that God exists is through a gesture of warmth, you know, an embrace and tell them God loves you, something like that. And so it really depends on the situation and the person, what tack I'm going to take. So uh, off-air, Bishop was asking, you know, what my favorite argument is. It, it really is, like, it depends on who I'm talking sure. to. I mean, the ones I like are the ontological. But the ones that I think work, it really, i got to read who I'm talking to to find out how is God going to use me to reach you right now. So where's a good starting place if you're talking to the entire listening audience or an entire classroom full of people and you, don't, you can't just target this specific person? Where, where would be a good place to start? Uh, I'll defer for a moment to someone who does that a lot, who speaks to many people at once. <laughs> well, as you asked that, I think we should start with existence. Okay. I mean, I like think defining that's where... existence or the... I mean, I'm, I'm coming from a more Thomistic background uh-huh. here. Um, I'm not sure, and, and I know Dr. Pearson can explain better. I'm not sure I could articulate the difference between the ontological argument and and Thomas's third proof, but it seems very close to me, the, the, the issue of contingency. In other words, I mean, it's, it's just, we all know that we exist. I mean, you have existence, I have existence, this desk has existence, I mean, everything has being. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you explain existence? How do you explain being? Okay, you could say, well, I receive my life from my parents, or you know, there's a cause, co- this gets into the causal argument, there's a cause and effect, or mm-hmm. this desk was made by a carpenter or whatever with materials that came from someone else who chopped down a tree and all this. But existence, the idea of being itself, it would seem that we can't explain, you know, that uh, we can't explain why there is 
why we exist or why there is being, why there is existence rather than nothingness. Mm -hmm. And there, so there has to be a cause. There has to be, and I'm not articulating this perfectly, but if, if I understand Thomas correctly, whether he's using his first argument of having a prime mover or a first cause, but the third argument, a necessary being that the existence that we have is contingent on receiving existence and it, it comes from somewhere and that there would be an infinite regression. There has to be, I would say, being that is being itself, being subsisting in itself, mm -hmm. which is something we call God. He is being itself. His essence and existence are one. And it, it kind of reminds me of what we read in the book of Exodus when God identified himself to Moses as I am who am. Right. You know, he has existed. I don't know that the Hebrews who wrote that had the, the philosophical background, but I always think that's... It's beautiful. Yeah. It is, yeah. yeah. I'm getting chills right now when you... Yeah. Yeah. To, to give an example of what you're talking about, when you say contingent... Yeah. It means it could have happened, it might not have happened, right? If your parents had never met, you wouldn't be here. So your being is contingent in that sense. You're, it's not necessary that you had ever existed. Like someone might say mm. uh, the number three has always existed from eternity. There's nothing that could have stopped the concept of threeness from existing. Yeah. But the planet Earth or your being born or what I ate for breakfast, they all could have been otherwise. Right, sure. And so that's what we mean by contingent being. And so we ask, why, did, why is this here? And so if you start with small examples, we see this every day. Like I see a, an empty bag of potato chips on my front lawn. And my first thought is, well, why is this here? Yeah. <laughs> and then I think, oh, wait, yesterday was trash day. And so it probably flew out of the trash, you know, the, the garbage truck as it came by. So I look for an explanation. I wouldn't say to myself, oh, it just appeared here. Uh -huh. It's just chance randomly materializing in, in my front yard is a bag of Funyuns, like an empty, you know, potato bag. So you, you want to know why is something here rather than why is it not here? And so when we look for explanations, we're doing something we're just built for because this is how the world works. It works through cause and effect. You can keep doing this. So why is this here? Well, the garbage truck. Why is the garbage truck here, right? We, you know, we want to get rid of stuff so that you keep going back and you keep going back. The sticking point is when we get to the very beginning. And someone might say, well, why did it all start? Why do we get this kind of big bang thing rolling? Which so you're talking about all the way, like all the way evolution, back. following all the way back to the big bang. Being yeah. Why is our universe before? here? Period. Uh -huh. Yeah. The answer is well, there's there's a reason for that too. But the rebuttal might be no, it just is, mm -hmm. it just happened. Now the the thing about saying it just happened is basically to give up on reasoning. It's like saying why is the bag of funyuns in my front yard? It just is, mm -hmm. right? That's just to say, I'm not going to give you a reason. There is no reason. To say I don't know is different than saying there's no such thing as a reason here. It just happened, right? To say I don't know might be honest, but to say there is no reason, that's either true or false. There is or there isn't a reason. In philosopher jargon, it's called biting the bullet or hmm. providing what's called a brute fact. So if I say I'm going to brute fact this thing, I'm, going to, I'm basically saying I've given up on reason. There is no reason here. This is, I've gotten to the bedrock axiomatic level of my own system of thinking. This is basically where at conferences, when philosophers talk about whether there's a God or not a God, where most of the conversation happens, where someone will say that brute fact is worse than my brute fact. Like my brute fact has an 
inner rationale to it, personhood that has intention, that can do things because of its power, right? Your brute fact has no rationale inherent in it. So my brute fact wins because it's inherently more acceptable to reason that this is an axiom that actually makes sense as an axiom, that there is a God. Your axiom that this particular physical universe with its quirkiness and idiosyncrasy as opposed to some other physical universe, the fact that this just is, that has no intrinsic rationale to it. It's just here. And so when you compare the two brute facts, it's clear one is more reasonable than the other. Is that kind of the end of the contingency argument? Or is it, you kind of mentioned some of these being genres of multiple different proofs within the yeah, so genre? I, the last thing I said, I moved away from the ontological toward the cosmological okay. and teleological. <laughs> like, you know, you could also look at this as, if you look at causes, okay, the world and evolution, there's all, it's all secondary causes, okay? Hmm. Um, so there has to be an origin. There has to be an ultimate cause. There has mm-hmm. to be a first cause. And that's God. So I think there's, for scientists, you know, I think, you know, they're working in the area of secondary causality. They're looking at how the universe develops, the physical, the, the chemical, the biological, you know, physics, all of that. And so they're not in the realm of metaphysics. They're looking at empirical. They're on the, in the realm of secondary causes. Mm. But when we talk about the existence of God, that's why there's a limit to what you can discover through empirical means. You know, so, so some scientists are believers, some are atheists, but a scientist cannot, via the empirical method, disprove the existence of God. Sure. Yeah, his, his domain is limited by his chosen field of study, and his chosen field of study is the physical world. And so by that very act of limiting myself to the physical world, I've already said what I can do and what I can't do. And I think in terms of uh, these intermediary causes, old examples are like dominoes, right? What, what caused domino 10 to fall? It was domino 9, uh-huh. et cetera, until you get back to the finger that pushed it. Right. I think today, I mean, if you think in terms of video games, it's even more helpful. That what, why does this thing move that way? Well, because I pushed the button uh-huh. and so on. And you might say um, players are like scientists. They figure out how the rules of the game work. And really good players understand all the rules. They know all the tricks. They can do the speed runs, et cetera. But ultimately, you ask, why is the rule this way? Well, because the designer right. wanted mm-hmm. the game to look this way. Yeah. And if he wanted it to look a different way, he would have he programmed it differently. And so I think this is how you can see the fact that you can understand intermediary and secondary causes is fine, but it doesn't even touch whether or not you're saying any, I mean, you're not saying anything about the designer. At best, you might be able to infer things about the designer, but you can't say, well, the game is just what it is. Like, we just found this Nintendo game sitting, you know, Uh out in the ether, and it has no explanation. Yeah. All right. Well, we've got more proofs to talk about. And if you have any questions for Bishop for a future episode, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we will continue talking about proofs of the existence of God coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop and special guest, Dr. Lewis Pearson from the University of St. Francis, philosophy professor, helping us to break down the 
proofs of God existence. We talked about the contingency, and you said that led into a little bit of the cosmo. What was it? So cause effect arguments are uh-huh. like cosmological, cosmological uh, contingency and necessity. Those are ontological, right? Whether being has an explanation. Uh-huh. Why is there something rather than nothing? So that has to do with contingent being that could have been here or not, and necessary being. It has to be here. So what are some of the other arguments for God that would be convincing to somebody, say our, our atheist friend, or, or maybe we're personally struggling with this? Yeah. Well, Bishop, how about we, if we give just a, a brief little catalog of some people throughout history that have, that have given us arguments, if a person's open to the spirit... It's possible that one of these will capture their attention and think, I, I want to know more about that argument, right? Uh-huh. So we can go back to, uh, I'd say, St. Augustine, three to four hundreds. His arguments I like, but they're not really arguments, so to speak, like on their own. The arguments of God's existence in Augustine are like scripture in the Mass. They're just sort of infused throughout his writing. Hmm. So in his book, The Confessions, in one of the, the latter chapters, chapter 10 or 11, I forget which one, Augustine says he was looking for God. And he looked to music, he looked to beauty, he looked to the oceans, he looked to the mountains. He kept asking, am I to find my ultimate meaning in you? Are you God? Are you it? And all of them said, no, he made us. Mm-hmm. And so there's a kind of argument for God in the nature of our desires, seeking fulfillment that he gives there. He gives another argument for the existence of God, in a sense, in his book against the academicians, people who are part of the academy, inheritors of Plato's school from ancient Greece. And at this time, the skeptics had taken over, basically people who said, the wise man knows that you can't know anything. Mm. So I'm never going to say I can know any truth, and that way I prove that I'm wise. The best I can do is to say I know something like truth, verisimilitude. It looks like truth. And Augustine's argument against that, it seems humble to say I'm not going to presume, I don't know these things, all these are above me. But it's, it's a kind of misguided attempted humility at best. So Augustine says, how do you know the thing that you have looks like truth if you don't know what truth is itself? Uh-huh. It's like saying, oh yeah, that looks like Bishop and I've never seen Bishop before. Like, you, you don't know there's a resemblance unless you know the standard. <sighs> and so he says, you can't say something looks like truth. You're actually cribbing, you're, you're smuggling in the fact that everything that you think is based on a presumption that you can know truth. And so on this basis, he, he starts to then build out and truth, by the way, is, is God, mm-hmm. right? following Jesus' line, I am the truth, the life, and the way. Augustine gives us, again, arguments that are sort of shot throughout. So people who are looking for something, if they've had a similar life as Augustine, might find a kindred spirit there, that they've looked for God, so to speak, in, in, in um, romantic relationships, in aesthetic pursuits. Augustine is a, a guy to help out there. An angst-ridden person, I think Anselm is helpful. Bishop, you said you, you weren't... <laughs> no, I, I'm not... Well, maybe you can convinced me, but his, his proof, which I consider a priori kind of proof of God's existence, that I have the concept, therefore, you know, just that mere concept, which we form, you know, to ourselves of God, we kind of know it a priori. I like the a posteriori to mystic approach, but anyhow, maybe you can convince me of Anselm's. Yeah, I, I'm not going to try that. I'll just, <laughs> so Anselm, thousands, one, 1100s, um, he wrote a, a couple of proofs. One is, his famous one is in the Proslogion, the word toward. It's based on being and perfection. Here's the, the thumbnail sketch of it. You can conceive of something than which none greater can be conceived. So, for instance, this is going to be an imperfect analogy, but 
there's always something taller. I can imagine something that's taller, right? So he asks, well, think about this in terms of perfection and being. So just because you can imagine something's taller doesn't mean the thing actually exists. You can sure. imagine something's sweeter, something's more sour, something's hotter, something's colder. It doesn't mean it necessarily exists. But that's not the case with being. So one of the reasons this argument often leaves people cold is being is different from every other kind of um, relative perfection. Okay. Mm. If you can imagine something then which none greater exists, the cherry on top, the, the linchpin move is he says, imagine, well, let's say for instance, something that knows all, that is all good, that has all power, basically, you know, God, the Christian God. Now imagine this God actually exists. Mm-hmm. That would be greater than a God that only exists in your mind. Right. And this God, if he actually is, then which greater than none can be conceived, must actually exist. Because it's better to exist than not to exist. Right, right. And it feels like you're pulling a rabbit out of a hat. It feels like a magic trick. I think really sustained contemplation of this shows, I think it works. There's an argument against it. Galanilla's reply that's often published with it. He says, look, I can imagine a perfect island. That doesn't mean it exists. And Anselm's reply, I think he was busy with uh, more ecclesial matters at the time. <laughs> he didn't really reply well. I think he's, he, he should have a perfect... Re- the response would be this, Galnillo, your perfect island, like what's the temperature? You know, how many plants are on it? Let's do it this way. Let's say yeah. you have an island, you always like the temperature, whatever it is, right? And this island uh, gives you all, every comfort. And this island saves your soul. And this island gives you eternal life. And this island we call God. Uh-huh. Basically, and you know, what's a perfect pizza? Well, it, it's tasty and it fills you now, but it fills you eternally and it gives you a mortal life. And this pizza we call God. So right. basically I think... The perfect anything that we would have on earth. If you focus on being. Would eventually be some, some form of God or God in and of itself. I mean, you start with this thing. I think about this with my kids. What's heaven going to look like? You, you start with the, the ready at hand pleasures and desires we have. God will fulfill them in a way that we can't foresee, especially when we're fixated at that low level. Is this getting back to Augustine where he, he says, yeah. like, my heart is restless until it rests in God, right? Like, there's nothing on this earth that will satisfy me. And that's, that's where God comes in. That we, we can see this by people that are not, people that have everything, but they're still not satisfied they're, because that is not our end yeah. goal. So that's the way to go. I, so this, this <laughs> island, the pizza, <laughs> yeah. these things don't satisfy us until they're so perfect that, well, now this is not no longer a pizza anymore. This right, is, so, exactly. It's, it's no longer what you made it to be in the first place. Right. It's not the romantic relationship that's going to fulfill me. It's not this aesthetic pursuit. It's not this worldly accomplishment. But I've been a bit a cheeky here. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's an end game that Anselm's getting at. But before I get to that, Vicious making funny faces at me. Like, <laughs> well, it kind of, you have me thinking of Descartes. I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, I think therefore I am. I mean, I still, maybe the reason I don't find this a very convincing argument because nothing against St. Anselm, but the whole idea of, I mean, we're talking about a thought, a concept, and then jumping to existence. Whereas Thomas, and I'm, I don't know how to, if Thomas criticized Anselm on this. Maybe he did. But I just find the a posteriori argument where you look at finite things and you look at contingent things that there has so you look for cause, you look for being itself, et cetera. It seems like maybe I'm thinking more in an Aristotelian way about, you know, you go from the material to or uh, and I don't know if Anselm is more of the platonic, the ideas, mm-hmm. but I don't know how you make the jump from thought to reality 
Anyhow, I don't. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd like to st- spend the next hour talking about that. <laughs> but I'd say if you think about it in terms of the cause having to have more perfection in it than the effect. Right. Right. And so you think maybe you reference like the so-called platonic way of looking at it. The, the architect, the blueprint, the idea has to have more reality in it than the effect that comes from it. So I can't make anything unless I first have a clear plan in mind. If you want to think of in terms of God the Father, God the Father speaks the word in the beginning there was, right? Uh, God speaks creation into being. And then Christ is the perfect word spoken into incarnation. And so if you want to think in terms of God the Father moving, when you say, well, when I get to the thought, I'm actually getting a hold of something deep here. Uh, maybe that'll be a helpful yeah, bridge yeah. between, yeah. yeah. But here, here's the, the context where I think Anselm really helps most people. M- most people, even philosophers, don't care for Anselm. So I might be an odd duck there. <laughs> but, <laughs> that makes but, me feel better. Yeah, yeah. But maybe you can convince me with what you're going to say now. Yeah, so I'm the outlier. <laughs> but this is how he begins to approach Logian. I'm just going to read just a few little passages, jump around. Come now, insignificant mortal. Leave behind your concerns for a little while and retreat for a short time from your restless thoughts. Cast off your burdens and cares. Set aside your labor and toil. And then he's going to move forward and say, Come now, O Lord my God. Teach my heart where and how to seek you, where and how to find you. Lord, if you're not here, where shall I seek you since you're absent? But if you're everywhere, why do I not see you since you're present? And he keeps going and he says, what wretched creatures are we? We know that we're made for God and he gives us all of our fulfillment. But we, we don't recognize him. We can't see him. So he begins in angst. Mm-hmm. So when you have someone, to get ultimately back to that question you asked, like, who is this going to be helpful for? You have someone who really says, I think there's a God, but really, how do I know there's a God? And what am I doing here? And I want something, but I don't know what it is. I mean, so many of us are spinning our wheels because we're miserable we don't even know what our end is. We don't even know what to shoot for. And basically, and so I'm saying this, I have, an, I have a word for it. It's called God. Mm-hmm. That's all I have. And so he begins pulling the, the reader in by saying, is this you? Do you have this same concern? And so I want to get, it, it's a meditation. So this is, I think, why he, he gives an argument that's based on thought. Okay. I want to get clear, what is my end? And how do I know the end is there? And so when we see... For most of these philosophers, especially the ones in the Catholic intellectual tradition, the context, it really helps. I mean, to jump forward to Thomas Aquinas, people will say, well, that, that argument leaves me cold. Again, his purpose was to give preachers training, many different ways to engage their, their flock. But he says in the questions right before that, all the yes-no questions in the Summa Theologiae, that they build. He starts by saying, uh, is there a God? Yes. Can we know there's a God? Yes. Can you prove it through logical demonstration there's a God? Yes. Can you give me a demonstration? Yes. So he keeps going and going and going. But in the previous questions, he says, look, is God knowable? Secundum say, in himself, yes, he's knowable. Quod knows, to us, not necessarily. Like if you're a five-year-old, not necessarily. If you've been pained by so many things that call themselves godly, and so anytime you hear the word God, you shut down, hmm. not necessarily. So Thomas, before he even gives the proofs, he says, quod nos, to us, it depends on who the, uh, the nos is, the us is, whether or not these proofs will be persuasive to you. Sure. But in himself, he is, God is rational and demonstrable. So God is not self-evident. He's, he's self-evident, say. secundum say, in himself, self-evident. I okay. mean, that'd be rough, the, the translation. He is self-evident, but that doesn't mean evident to, to us. To everyone, yeah. When we see the self-evident right. truth. Got yeah. it. And we, yeah, we, we do equivocally use the word self-evident to mean 
everyone understands it when they see it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, you mentioned talking about this for a whole hour, and I think <laughs> this is going to be the struggle here, how we're going to wrap this up here to to give a little bit more insight in this and maybe give some people some ideas of where they can go for more information because, I mean, this is a whole semester-long course, if not more. So try to tie this up in a little little bow here. We'll see how you guys do. If you have any questions for Bishop for the future episodes, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll continue talking about proofs for the existence of God here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop and our special guest, Dr. Lewis Pearson from the University of St. Francis. Uh, we're, we're just scratching the surface here. So maybe if we can kind of share a little bit more on these proofs of God existence, but then get into some resources that people could go for, for more information, because they shouldn't think that this 45-minute episode is the conclusive. This is every way that the Catholic Church is, is, or the Christianity has, has gone to, to prove God's existence, but this is just a, a little sample, maybe. Yeah, we've gotten deep at moments, but right, this is kind of the, the appetizer tray okay. <laughs> that we're giving people some, hopefully the Holy Spirit, again, is moving people to think, oh, wow, that really sounded great. I want to know more about that. Okay. I had one other I wanted to point out with the little time we had left yeah. uh, for my part. C.S. Lewis has a book called The Problem of Pain. He has many books that have helped people to see that Christianity is not only rational, but maybe the most rational philosophic stance a person can have, mm -hmm. all stances included. And in The Problem of Pain, he, he begins with this great passage. Uh, I share this in common with C.S. Lewis, uh, had a time as an atheist, really brought back into the faith by my love of the embodied sacramentality of the church. I needed the smells and the bells. I didn't just need an intellectualist. I mean, people think philosophers are all just, you know, in their minds, but I needed to be raised up. And uh, C.S. Lewis himself has a similar kind of experience, being very aesthetic, loving the, the pagans, the ancient Greeks. And he begins the problem of pain this way. Not many years ago, when I was an atheist, if anyone had asked me, why do you not believe in God? My reply would have run something like this. So he's speaking as his old atheist self. This mm -hmm. is what Lewis would have said back then. Look at the universe we live in. By far the greatest part of it consists of empty space, completely dark and unimaginably cold. And he just keeps going on how cold and vast the universe is. And then you find this one little dirt ball in this far flung arm of the Milky Way galaxy. And what you find there is creatures that have the ability to feel pain and most of their life is pain and suffering and ill will. And so how could I think that there's a God behind this giant idiotic face of infinite matter? Almost like a mistake. Yeah, this seems crazy. And then this is how he ends this, this opening, this, this bleak, like three pages yeah. I'm skipping over. This uh -huh. is how I would have answered as an atheist, he says. But then he says this, there's one question I never dreamed of raising. I never noticed that the very strength and facility of the pessimist case at once poses a problem. If the universe is so bad, or even half so bad, how on earth did human beings ever to come to attribute to it the activity of a wise and good creator? And so he, this is why the book is called The Problem of Pain. Uh -huh. So modern people today think the fact that there's such evil in the world proves there's no God. Some people think the, what's called the problem of evil is the biggest philosophical objection to there being the Christian God. It doesn't seem like you need gratuity. Like maybe there's some necessary evil, 
this necessary evil allows for this greater good to come from it. But mm-hmm. it looks like there's gratuitous evil, evil that has no redeeming quality. You didn't need it to have rede- redemption. Why do we have this? So this is what philosophers often say is the biggest problem for proving that God exists today. And in C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain, he actually says, no, actually, this pain itself is a kind of proof. And there's another Catholic uh, philosopher working today, Alexander Proust. He's been working with colleagues pointing out that the so-called weakness of Christianity, the problem of evil, like C.S. Lewis says, might actually hold within it another proof for God's existence. That Hmm. if we think the universe is so bad, I mean, the fact that we have concepts like good and bad in the first place need justified, and they're not justified on the badness of a creation with no God alone. My last recommendation here would be, if people haven't read it, C.S. Lewis's Problem of Pain is, is a wonderful book. Okay. So, quick summary. St. Augustine's Confessions, uh, C.S. Lewis, Problem of Pain. What else would you recommend? So, it might leave a lot of people cold, but Anselm's Proslogion. Okay. Uh, Augustine also his Against the Academics or Against the Academicians. That's where he proves that truth has to exist, even for people who think you can't know anything. Okay. We didn't mention Bonaventure's Journey into the Mind of God, but my colleague at the University of St. Francis, Alex Giltner, mm-hmm. uh, has developed just, I think, the best, the best way to teach that argument so that students just see, yeah, God has to be real, and it's based on being. And I, I've, I've read that. It's, it's really fascinating. Is that published somewhere? No, he's... Okay. Uh, yeah, so don't share that around. He's getting it published soon. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Good. All right, good. And Bishop, what would you recommend people uh, I, check I out? I can't believe that Dr. Pearson recommended Anselm's Proslogion and didn't recommend Thomas Aquinas. Got, uh, yeah, I brought the Summa Contra Gentiles oh, because yeah. I like his argument in this too. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Because he really doesn't spend a lot of time on it in the Summa Theologica. Yeah. But, but that was my mistake, Bishop. I apologize profusely. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think for the average person though, because the Summa Theologica is, is quite long. I mean, few thousand pages, I don't know, 4,000 pages or something. So you may not want to go out and buy the volumes of the Summa, but there is a shortened version. First of all, there's the Summa of the Summa by, uh, it's a shortened version, but there's even a a shortened version of that Uh by Peter, how do you say his last name? Kreft. Kreft. I always forget how to pronounce his last name. Peter Kreft has a, a little book called A Shorter Summa. The Essential Philosophical Passages of St. Thomas Aquinas, Summa Theologica, edited and explained. And it's really good, but one of the chapters is about the existence of God. And I think it's the way he does it is, is really good. So, I, so if you want to study St. Thomas, that's very good. Another one that, uh, Kyle, I think you told me you had Dr. Gerard Verschuren on your show, right? Yeah, a couple times. A few times, great. okay. Where is he at? Notre Dame? He's got a very German accent. I don't know if he's But how did you in have Germany? him in person? No, over the phone. Oh, over the yeah. phone. Well, he wrote a book, I think it's pretty recent, mm-hmm. called A Catholic Scientist Proves God Exists. A Catholic Scientist Proves God Exists, and it's published by Sophia Institute Press. It's very good because he looks at proofs of God's existence, the argument from motion, the argument from design. So definitely a Thomistic approach primarily, but it's a scientist who's, you know, a philosopher too, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And another one that we've talked about on this show before, when I looked at that question, when we've talked about the faith science question, mm-hmm. I've mentioned Dr. Chris Baglow before, and he has a, uh, a textbook for high school students that I think could really be used in college as well. 
which really is, I think, a beautiful book on the relationship between faith and science and between reason and science. So I want to recommend that. Again, it's, it's published by the Midwest Theological Forum, and he also you know, gets into the, the question of the existence of God in that book t- as well. So, What's the name of that book again? Faith, Science, and Reason. Theology on the Cutting Edge. Okay, and it's a textbook, but you yeah. can you could read it as a as a regular sorry, book. Yeah, okay. yeah. All right. Well, thank you both for joining us and and shedding a little light on this very interesting and uh, hard to to tackle in a short amount of time topic. But thank you both for being here. It's a lot of fun. Thanks you're for having welcome. me. Thank you, Dr. Pierce. I'm glad you're here in our diocese and at the University of St. Francis. As am I. Yeah. Can we get your Episcopal blessing before we go, Bishop? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now Now and forever. forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.